morning, everyone. Um, my name is Corey, if we haven't met, and uh, it is my privilege today to, uh, to share uh, today's message with you, uh, which I don't get to do very often. I'm the worship pastor here at North Langley Community Church, which is where you have found yourself, if there was any confusion. Uh, so I don't get to do a lot of preaching, but today I do. So uh, yeah, hope it, hope it goes well. We'll find out. Um, hey, if you've been around uh, NLCC for the past while, you'll know that we, uh, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, last week, uh, Tim, one of our pastors, uh, he spoke about what it means to live as children of light. And today's passage is actually kind of along a similar uh, path, but in the realm of leadership. Uh, So today we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 37 to 44, and it is all about leadership. And I think it's safe to say that we live in a culture today that is a little bit obsessed with leadership. Uh, In 2022, the resources that we have at our fingertips uh, are kind of endless. We've got a gluttony of available content from TED Talks to podcasts to endless books, conferences, and more. And so, in theory, when it comes to leadership, we should be killing it. Like, we should be doing so well with that. And yet, I think that it's safe to say that probably many of us are feeling a little bit let down with leadership, maybe a little bit delusioned. Well, today we're looking at an interesting passage, and I think it's a very relevant passage for where we are today. On its surface, uh, this passage in Luke today is all about a failed and a corrupt leadership. But actually, at the end of the day, it really does point us to the Jesus way of leadership, which will always be humble, outward-focused, and genuine. The Jesus way of leadership will always be humble, outward-focused, and genuine. So when I use the phrase, a failed or corrupt leadership, who comes to mind for you? Don't say it out loud. My hunch is that every one of us has a name or an image that comes to mind. And maybe you thought of Harvey Weinstein. Maybe you thought of Donald Trump. Maybe you thought of Jeffrey Epstein, Bernie Madoff. Now, sadly, uh, church leadership is clearly, very clearly, not immune to failure either. And in fact, it seems as though more and more leaders in Christian circles have failed in massive ways. And so if you are in Christian circles, maybe you're thinking of spiritual leaders such as Ravi Zacharias, Roxy Cabey, Ted Haggard, Carl Lentz, Jerry Falwell Jr., Bill Hybels. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that um, the, uh, most of these people were probably actually thinking of men, not women, which is an interesting fact. Uh, but these are leaders. These men are leaders that abused their influences and authority, and they took advantage of others for their own personal gain whether it was sexually, financially, emotionally, spiritually, or whatever, it does seem clear that we have a problem. So I remember being in Seattle a number of years ago uh, and having the opportunity to attend one of America's fastest-growing megachurches. It was the coolest, edgiest place to be. They met in a warehouse. Uh, The music was super vibey and gritty. And the pastor was this, like, really charismatic and notoriously a a shoot-from-the-hip kind of guy. Just one of those guys that didn't didn't care about social niceties or political correctness. He had this real confidence and swagger to him, and he spoke aggressively using using lots of certainty language. I'm not going to say who it was, but it was Mark Driscoll, and the church was Mars Hill. (laughs) Don't worry, it's not not a big secret. This has been all over the news. There's podcasts and articles all over the place. Uh, And in the end... Those of you that are, are familiar with, uh, with Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, there's a spoiler alert here. Uh, Mark Driscoll was asked to resign. He was fired because of many, many accusations of emotional abuse, bullying, plagiarism with his writing, lots of questionable handling of the church's finances in ways, of course, that served himself. 
So unfortunately, this is just one small example in a sea of others. It does seem as though we have a problem. We have a leadership problem. And again, let's be reminded that the Jesus way of leadership will always be humble, outward focused, and genuine. And so as Christians, once again, we turn to Jesus, we turn to the scriptures, and as I get older, uh, I am constantly amazed and grateful at how the wisdom of our scriptures, it truly is timeless, and it's so incredibly practical if we have eyes to see, if we pay attention, which of course is half the battle. And so we're going to look to the Bible together at a very interesting passage where Jesus confronts a corrupt leadership. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness, fools, Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you love to sit in seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you? For you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Debbie. So here we have this dramatic and what actually kind of feels like a socially awkward situation, which seems to happen somewhat often with Jesus. He's calling out these religious leaders that are known as the Pharisees. And I would like to suggest today three reasons why I think Jesus is calling them out. As leaders, number one, they were distracted from God's priorities. Number two, they were stealing God's glory for themselves. And number three, they were misrepresenting God's love to the people. So the first way I want to suggest is that the Pharisees were distracting from God's priorities. So they had this bad habit, the Pharisees did, of overemphasizing some minor, less important things, but then really underemphasizing the most important things, the things that God prioritizes. So it's probably a good idea for us to just take a quick look at who the Pharisees actually were. So the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders that came from a long line of teachers, and Their goal was to live as pure a life as possible. That was the goal, to keep themselves pure, to keep the community around them pure, and ultimately to make sure that Israel as a nation was pure. This was huge for them because they wanted to make sure that when God returned, they believed he would return, and they, they wanted to be found to be a holy people, and so that they would be vindicated on judgment day by God. The Pharisees were highly influential, and they were considered spiritual leaders in that time. And a big part of the problem with the Pharisees is that as experts in the law, we refer to the Old Testament, uh, they would take the scriptures that they knew so well and they would, well, they would kind of expand on those scriptures. And it seems though they would do this in a way that, that probably seemed logical and protective. 
making sure to cover all the bases. So not only were they the gatekeepers of the scriptures, but they were also their own interpreters of the scriptures. And I think maybe you and I can relate a little bit to this expanding, if we're honest. For instance, it wasn't that long ago that for many Christians, uh, dancing was considered a taboo, right? Anyone remember that? Why was that? Well, because it might lead to kissing. That's right. No one, no one jumped in on that one. Uh, <laughs> The point is, there's a good chance that dancing might bring about temptations that could cause a person to sin. So dancing itself might not even necessarily be a sin, but it could lead to something that might be tempting and it might lead to sin. Or going to the movies, for instance, was wrong as well. It was considered wrong by many because there might be off-color content in them that wasn't very Christian. It could lead us into temptation and ultimately lead us towards sin. But you can kind of see, I think we can see, that that, that can kind of end up being a bit of a slippery slope argument, right? Uh, you know, it's like, as parents, you're like, well, if we let our kids do this, which is actually okay, the thing is, if they do that, they might do this over here, and if they do that, well, then they're probably going to do this, and if they do this, they'll probably do that, and if they do that, it's almost certain they're going to end up right here, and that's like, no way, so forget it, they can't do this, right? And you're like, oh, wow, we kind of got all the way down there uh, really quickly, and so I think as though it's like, um, sorry, one second here, got my notes mixed up here, right, yeah, I think some of us parents can totally sympathize with this way of thinking. And if you're a Pharisee where purity and holiness is the ultimate goal, if that's indeed what God is requiring of us, well, what do you do? You're going to need to create systems and rules that will protect us, right? It kind of makes sense. The problem is it's so easy to make these proverbial fences uh, to protect us closer and closer together, to keep the wolves at bay, to keep us safe inside, that pretty soon we've completely missed out on the beauty of life that's offered to us. Suddenly, we feel the opposite of free. And Jesus, of course, we believe this as Christians, he came to offer us life in abundance and freedom, not a bunch of rules to obsess over. I recently read the fantastic novel by John Steinbeck, um, East of Eden. Uh, and I love the character, Liza Hamilton, who's married to Samuel and is a deeply religious, stern, and rigid woman. The way Steinbeck describes her is often really hilarious and, and all too familiar. And so there's a, a fun little excerpt that reminds me a little bit of what we're talking about here. And the context is that perhaps for the first time, Liza and Samuel are going to go on a little vacation to Salinas, California, and she's kind of mixed up about it because, of course, this might be enjoyable. And so this is her pondering. She looked forward to heaven as a place where clothes did not get dirty and where food did not have to be cooked and dishes washed. Privately, there were some things in heaven of which she did not quite approve. There was too much singing. And she didn't see how even the elect could survive for very long the celestial laziness which was promised. She would find something to do in heaven. She was happy and frightened about the visit to Salinas. She liked the idea so well she felt there must be something bordering on sin involved in it. Liza had learned to be very watchful, very protective of even the smallest hint of a possibility that there could even be a whiff of sinful behavior, so much so that even enjoyment itself was to be regarded as suspicious. And so in our story, in this passage with Jesus and the Pharisee, we can see that this Pharisee is surprised that Jesus doesn't wash his hands. 
That seems to be a bit of a deal, and here's why. So this particular Jewish custom, washing one's hands, actually came from uh, two passages in Exodus 30 and 40, where we have these two priests uh, that are told that they must wash, or rather immerse, is a better translation, immerse their hands in water before bringing a food offering to the altar to present before God. So the thing is, if you're paying attention, you can already see that it's a bit different than what we're encountering here, isn't it? First of all, it's a law for priests, not for everyone. And the Pharisees weren't priests. Jesus wasn't a priest in the technical sense of the word. And secondly, it's a law for priests that has to do with the handling of food that's going to be used as an offering to God, which is also not what's happening here. So it's an example of a law that started out one way and really expanded over the years until it's a law that applies to everyone for any sort of eating. And this was a big deal for the Pharisees. One of the earliest, um, earlier Jewish documents called the Yoma contained a lot of different laws and customs for Jews. It stated that if one's hands were dirty, everything became unclean. And in fact, a later rabbinic tradition compares, compares eating bread without previously washing your hands to having sex with a prostitute. Big deal. But Jesus is saying, you guys have this all backwards. It's actually the other way around, it's your heart that you should be worried about cleaning, not so much your hands. In fact, there's another story uh, from the book of Matthew where Jesus makes it crystal clear. He's having a similar conversation with another group of Pharisees, and he says this. He says, anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. It's gross but true. But the words you speak come from the heart. This is what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. So we should keep in mind here that Jesus isn't saying that appearances in our, and our actions don't matter. He's not saying that, of course. But he is saying that what really matters is where your heart's at. We can see in verse 42, he says, you should tithe, yes, but don't neglect the more important things. In other words, he's saying, you're tithing, you're giving what you have to God, this is good, that's great, keep doing that. But you're actually missing the most important thing. I was thinking a little bit about this as an example, and I thought, so I'm a piano player, and we have other piano players probably in the room here, but can you imagine if someone came up, so someone comes up to me and says like, okay, Corey, I've, I've figured out exactly how to become like the best pianist you could ever become. It's like, I'm thinking to myself, I've kind of like honed it down to one big thing. And the biggest thing, honestly, if you could like, if you could just get one thing right to become the world's greatest pianist, what you need to do is make sure that your bench is solid. Like if you tighten the screws in each leg so that they're not wobbly at all, you make sure that the cushion there is super comfortable so that when you're playing, you feel comfortable and free to do your thing. You make sure it doesn't squeak or wobble. So if someone said that, I think any pianist here would be like, like okay, I, I mean, I guess a bench is important. You want to make sure it's not, you're not going to fall off, but it's kind of weird that you're making that the thing. You know, It's like you didn't even mention, like, what about practicing? What about playing the piano? That might have something to do with becoming a good piano player. So basically, Jesus is saying you're missing the point. Like you've made the real minor stuff the major stuff, and you've lost the plot. You're talking about a piano bench. You haven't even talked about touching the keyboard itself. And what's the major stuff? Well, Jesus says it's loving God and loving justice. Loving God as you love your neighbor, which will always mean being devoted to justice. And at the end of verse 40, Jesus offers the remedy to this problem of greed and wickedness, as he calls it, that's lurking inside of these leaders. He says, so clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you'll be clean all over. That's it. Wow. 
That should be kind of a sobering reality for us. I think that we sometimes forget about God's heart for the poor. I know that I certainly do. But honestly, if we take two minutes to do a Google search on what the Bible has to say about God's heart for the poor, it becomes pretty convicting pretty quick. And so Jesus is saying here, this is going to solve your greed problem. It'll solve your wickedness problem. Take care of the poor. So somehow in this moment, it's covering both loving God and being devoted to justice. The Jesus way of leadership will always be humble, outward focused, and genuine. So that's our first point. Jesus is upset that the Pharisees are distracted from God's priorities. They're emphasizing the wrong things and ignoring the most important things. They're missing the forest for the trees. Secondly, I'd like to suggest that Jesus is tired of the fact that the Pharisees are stealing God's glory for themselves. As leaders and influencers, the Pharisees are being arrogant, proud, and greedy. They're disingenuous and self-serving. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplace. It's pretty straightforward. I think Jesus is referring in the synagogue, it's referring to the elevated seats that separate the congregation from the more elite, higher status people. And the synagogue, of course, was meant to be a place of prayer and for the studying of scripture. And the Pharisees are using it to generate prestige for themselves. They're being self-centered and they're lacking humility. And in the marketplaces, Pharisees would often be greeted with reverence by others because they were an example of what it means to be devoted to God. But Jesus is exposing them as all, all show and no substance. You are, hidden like, you, you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they're stepping on. Now, this would have been a real slap in the face because of the context Back then, everyone would have known that according to the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, it states that any contact with a grave would make a person unclean for seven days. And so Jesus is kind of being ironic. He's saying, you are responsible for the spreading of the defilement that you are so worried about. Anyone who has contact with you is defiled because in essence, they're having contact with a grave. You guys are walking corpses. He's saying, you're greedy and you're wicked. You care more about your status than you do about people you have influence over. You're not caring for the poor, you're caring for you. You're arrogant, proud, and greedy. It's easy for me to happily point my finger at the Pharisees and think to myself, glad I'm not like that. Unfortunately, I know myself a little better than that. And I know how easy it is for me to slip into a quiet kind of spiritual pride or even arrogance. And often it's after I've made some helpful points in a conversation about spiritual things or if I've been part of a service that went really well or whatever. And it's interesting because often it goes from a healthy sense of offering something beautiful, which is a good and healthy thing when we get to offer our gifts to do, add to the beauty of the world. Uh, it goes from that into a self-focused and over-exaggerated view of what I'm bringing to the table. I've recently been, been reading uh, the book, The New Seeds of Contemplation by Thomas Merton, who is an American Trappist monk, poet, mystic, and theologian. And there's this fantastic little passage that I came across that I'd love to share with you. And he does this great job of describing how pride easily and subtly seeps into our lives. It's about a three and a half minute video, so let's, uh, let's check this out. And now I am thinking of the disease which is spiritual pride. I am thinking of the peculiar unreality that gets into the hearts of the saints and eats their sanctity away before it is mature. 
There is something of this worm in the hearts of all religious men. As soon as they have done something which they know to be good in the eyes of God, they tend to take its reality to themselves and to make it their own. They tend to destroy their virtues by claiming them for themselves and clothing their own private illusion of themselves with values that belong to God. Who can escape the secret desire to breathe a different atmosphere from the rest of men? Who can do good things without seeking to taste in them some sweet distinction from the common run of sinners in this world? This sickness is most dangerous when it succeeds in looking like humility. When a proud man thinks he is humble, his case is hopeless. Here is a man who has done many things that were hard for his flesh to accept. He has come through difficult trials and done a lot of work. And by God's grace, he has come to possess a habit of fortitude and self-sacrifice in which, at last, labor and suffering become easy. It is reasonable that his conscience should be at peace. But before he realizes it, the clean peace of a will united to God becomes the complacency of a will that loves its own excellence. The pleasure that is in his heart when he does difficult things and succeeds in doing them well tells him secretly, I am a saint. At the same time, others seem to recognize him as different from themselves. They admire him or perhaps avoid him, a sweet homage of sinners. The pleasure burns into a devouring fire. The warmth of that fire feels very much like the love of God. It is fed by the same virtues that nourish the flame of charity. He burns with self-admiration and thinks, it is the fire of the love of God. He thinks his own pride is the Holy Ghost. The sweet warmth of pleasure becomes the criterion of all his works. The relish he savors in acts that make him admirable in his own eyes drives him to fast or to pray or to hide in solitude or to write many books or to build churches and hospitals or to start a thousand organizations. And when he gets what he wants, he thinks his sense of satisfaction is the unction of the Holy Spirit. And the secret voice of pleasure sings in his heart, Now sum sicut caeteri homines. I am not like other men. Once he has started on this path, there is no limit to the evil his self-satisfaction may drive him to do in the name of God and of his love and for his glory. He is so pleased with himself that he can no longer tolerate the advice of another or the commands of a superior. When someone opposes his desires, he folds his hands humbly and seems to accept it for the time being. But in his heart, he is saying, I am persecuted by worldly men. They are incapable of understanding one who is led by the Spirit of God. With the saints, it has always been so. Having become a martyr, he is ten times as stubborn as before. It is a terrible thing when such a man gets the idea he is a prophet or a messenger of God or a man with a mission to reform the world. He is capable of destroying religion and making the name of God odious to men. It's pretty sobering. <clears throat> you know, among the many themes in Scripture, there are two themes that really stand out over and over and over again. One of them is the least of these, as in the less fortunate, the outsider, the poor, the immigrant, and the marginalized. The second, a second one is God's passion for humility. 
Countless times in scripture we read that God opposes the proud but embraces the meek. I remember um, reading a really beautiful uh, story about Richard, Richard Foster. Richard Foster is an author, um, really a really great author that I've really enjoyed. He, he, wrote, he writes a lot about spiritual formation. And he was giving an interview a while ago, and he, and he shared that when he had first um, felt like God was calling him to, uh, to be a, a writer and to kind of go into this ministry, um, he, uh, he just he knew what he had to do, and so he, he contacted his spiritual mentor. Now, he didn't Actually, he had never actually met his spiritual mentor, but he was a guy who, was, who had written a lot and had meant a lot to Richard Foster. And so he wrote him a letter and just said, would you, would you pray for me? Like, I feel like I'm being called into this ministry. Like, I just want you to pray for me. Uh, it would be mean the world to me just to kind of launch my ministry. And, and the guy was very gracious and said, of course, please come, come to my office and we'll do this. He was about three or four hours away. So Richard Foster drove to him and he, and he got into his office and the guy looked at him and said, Okay, I'm looking forward to praying for you, but I have a few things I got to get off my chest first. And for the next half hour, he confessed his sins to Richard Foster. Big list of all these sins. He had never met him before. And Richard Foster was like, he didn't know what to do with it. And the guy at the end of this was like, so do you still want me to pray for you? And for, for Richard Foster, it was this really kind of beautiful and stark um, picture of what humility is. The guy recognized that Richard had put him on a pedestal. He's like, you're putting him on a pedestal, and that's not actually who I am. I'm a broken person. I'm happy to pray for you, but you need to know a few things first. The Jesus way of leadership will always be humble, outward-focused, and genuine. And instead of being marked by humility, the Pharisees were stealing God's glory for themselves. They were being self-centered and prideful. I'd like to suggest the third reason that Jesus was so frustrated with many of the Pharisees in that time is because, because to some degree, they were misrepresenting God's love to the people. See, again, the Pharisees were the epitome of what devotion to God was supposed to look like. These leaders were considered the experts when it came to the Jewish scriptures, and they held authority and influence. And in a lot of ways, they were looked at in a similar way that pastors are looked at today. People looked to them to understand what God was like what he required of them, and they were leading people astray. Because here's the thing, we're all desperate for God. We're all desperate to know God, to hear from him, and to feel close to God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has placed eternity on the human heart, and I think that it's a universal truth that helps us understand the human condition. God has hardwired us for himself, and so therefore, we're all searching for him, whether we know it or not. So whether you've been a Christian for 70 years or whether you call yourself an atheist, I truly believe that you are looking for God. I am looking for God. And so when we hear someone speaking with authority about the ways of God and how to ensure that we are in his good books, I think that our soul rises up within us and we lean in and we think to ourselves, maybe this person finally has the answers my heart has been searching for all my life. Leadership matters. It influences so much of what happens in our world. A case in point this last week, uh, tens of thousands of people flocked to see the Pope as he's come to Canada this past week. Uh, they've listened to every word that he is speaking. And in this case, it's because he, a spiritual leader's voice is crucial to hopefully help as part of the healing of our indigenous brothers and sisters in the terrible abuse that they've suffered, particularly in residential schools. But we have all these people flocking to hear what the Pope has to say, to hang on his every word. Leadership really matters. 
If you're a Christian and you have any sort of level of leadership or influence, it's an important reminder for us. We're representing God in the ways that we use our authority. In a very real sense, we are God's ambassadors in our world today. It's similar to a family situation. Um, my wife, Sherry, and myself, have, we've tried to find a healthy way, sometimes successfully and often unsuccessfully. We've tried to find a healthy way of showing our kids that to some degree or other, they represent our family when they're interacting with the world. It's not just them. If they do something that is beautiful and life-giving and selfless, it actually reflects on us beautifully as a family. They're representing us. If they treat someone terribly or act in a way that is self-centered and ugly, it also reflects on us as a family. The obvious disclaimers here that you know, we have to be careful about what sort of demands we're putting on our kids and people around us. Narrow is the way. Finding that balance as a parent is no small task. But the reality is the same. We represent each other. And as Christians, we're representing God. <clears throat> How about in the church? Man, I've had so many times when I am reminded that I represent us to the people in Langley community, and so do you. If you're a regular part of our services, you, you do as well. I've had lots of, lots of panic moments at Save On uh, when someone will say something like, hey, like you do the music at the church down the road, right? And immediately I'm scrambling in my mind like, okay, was I rude to them? Did I say something weird? Did I cut them off in the parking lot? You know, it's like it's a stark reminder in those moments that it's not just me. I don't represent just me. My hunch is that many of us are Christians because of someone else's influence in our lives. Someone we respected or looked up to did a good job of representing God's love to us. Sorry, just needed a bit of cream soda. <clears throat> just kidding, it's water. No. Jesus, uh, he saw that the Pharisees who were leaders and who had influence, um, they were speaking about and representing God in ways that weren't accurate. And so he calls them out. Because the thing is, religion can make us do terrible things, as we've seen over and over again in our history. If we believe that God is demanding something of us that will affect our eternal security, we're probably going to do it. It's been said that the worst wars are religious wars. We've been watching the miniseries Under the Banner of Heaven, uh, which is a show that's based on the true story of a terrible double murder that takes place in Utah within a fundamentalist Mormon community. And you see this very thing disturbingly play out. Because when someone with a spiritual authority tells you that God is demanding something, it's pretty hard to say no. And what did the God that the Pharisees were pointing to look like? Well, he seemed to be a God that was obsessed with micromanaging, with hygiene, purity, rituals, rules, and hoops to jump through. A God obsessed with his own glory and his own piety, a proud and most likely angry God who had a measuring stick out for every action and inaction and who was keeping score so that his judgment would be exact and ruthlessly objective. I wonder what you think about when you think about God. Does he look a little bit like the God shown by the Pharisees? I have to be honest that I grew up thinking that God was kind of angry. He was this powerful being, someone who was waiting around the corner with a baseball bat, ready to hit me over the head if, if and when I screwed up. A God that I gave my life to over and over and over again because I feared that even though I'd done it once, it may not have taken, and he was probably angry with me because of what I did last night or what I did this morning or whatever. I kind of had a belief in the God that the Pharisees were pointing to. A God who was generally in a bad mood, and who actually really wasn't 
for me in the end. Okay, so if the Pharisees were guilty of misrepresenting God's love, we should ask ourselves, well, what is God like? And I think the best source for us to look to in order to answer that question is, of course, Jesus. And when we ask Jesus, what is God like? He has a very simple answer for us. He says, well, God is like me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. And he tells us that God is like a good and a gentle shepherd who leaves his 99 healthy, safe sheep to go and find and rescue the one lost sheep that has wandered away from him. In the story of the prodigal son, he shows us a loving and patient father who loves his children relentlessly, even when one of his children has basically slapped his face and said, you know, I don't need you, I want your money. I want the money that's coming to me. He heads off into a far land, lives this crazy, self-indulgent life, an embarrassing life for the family. But he's the kind of father that waits and watches and waits and watches until suddenly he sees his son and he runs to him. And he picks him up and he hugs him and he says, like, throw a party, my son's returned. Even as the son is trying to apologize, like Jesus, the, the father doesn't even let him get through it. We see a humble God who comes to us, not as a warrior, but as a servant, who washes the feet of his disciples. A God who cares deeply about the poor, the outsider, and the marginalized. Not as a God who hates his enemies, but who teaches us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. God lays down his life for the world, dying a criminal's death on the cross, taking upon himself the sins of the world and the consequences of those sins in order that all of creation, that we might be reconciled back to our good and loving creator. It's a far better picture of God. Plato once said that the measure of a person is what they do with power. And so it seems as though there's a high calling that God has when it comes to leadership, and in particular when it comes to Christian leadership or influence. Now again, you might be thinking, well, at least it's just for the leaders in the church. I'm off the hook. But of course, it's just unfortunately not true. It's for any of us who have influence in our world, which of course means all of us. We're all leaders in one way or another. Those of us who are parents, for instance, especially of younger children, well, we have a lot of power over our children. What do we do with that power? Am I, as a parent, am I acting uh, more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees? Are my kids seeing a glimpse of the love of God in the ways that I parent? Are they seeing humility or are they seeing pride? How about if you're a leader in your workplace or an influencer in your workplace? Would the people around you say that they feel led in a way that demonstrates genuine care and respect? Or might they feel micromanaged and insecure because of the way that you hold power over them? How about if you're a teacher? Well, how would your students describe you? I had a teacher in grade nine, Mr. Novak, and he was just an amazing teacher. He was someone, I was like a, a real awkward grade nine student, which a lot of you know, grade nine students, if you're here, grade nines, I'm sure you're way cooler than I, I was. But at the time, I was just super awkward, and, and you know, you're trying to kind of make your way and figure out who you are in this world, and Mr. Novak was just this very gentle, kind teacher who just saw something in me, and he would be like, Corey, I love that, that's, that's so great, you know, and, and I just, it meant the world to me. I don't think he was a Christian, but God certainly used him in my life. Again, I think that Jesus is looking for leaders who are humble, outward-focused, and genuine. And how do we ensure that we're right, we're on the right path with this, that we're leading in this way? Here's a couple of, of quick thoughts that have been helpful for me. It's important, I think, for all of us to have safeguards in place as we journey through this life together. 
Do you have people around you that, you that have permission to call you out on stuff? Are you honest with at least one person? Do you have any sort of built-in community that you feel safe being transparent with? For me, these are really important factors in my life. It's way too easy to start living dualistically without these built-in safeguards. And the truth of the matter is, we are all broken people that are doing our best to stumble our way towards God. Let's also never forget that God is love and that he has so much grace for each of us. He asks us to be humble, to be honest with safe people around us about our struggles, to be honest with him about where we're at. Remember, God embraces the humble. So in closing, I guess there's an encouragement here as well as a warning for us. We live in an increasingly polarized and information-saturated time. It's more important than ever for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers to be good ambassadors for the kingdom of God, to represent God honestly and humbly and accurately, to be quick to apologize and to own our failures when they happen, and they will. The church has gotten pummeled by its own people lately, and I believe that our world is starving for leaders that exemplify Jesus in their humility and their genuine care for others as they point people towards God. And if you're like me, it can be really easy to look around, see all the scandals and the misuse of power, and to be tempted to throw in the towel. In fact, it seems as though more and more people are avoiding Christian leadership positions, which I kind of get. I mean, it can feel like you're putting yourself in the crosshairs. But I don't think that's the answer for us. I think that instead of being discouraged, instead of being paranoid and avoiding what God might be calling us to in our lives, let's be inspired. I really do believe that Jesus is looking for humble leaders in his church, people like you and like me that, again, are stumbling towards him. We're not perfect and we're going to get it wrong, often, but I think that Jesus is looking for leaders that will do their best to prioritize what God prioritizes. Men and women that aren't obsessed with their own glory or their ego, but rather are wanting to point people to Jesus. And finally, leaders that demonstrate the love of God in a way that is self-giving and authentic. The Jesus way of leadership will always be humble, outward focused, and genuine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have shown us what good leadership can look like. Thank you that you are humble and kind, patient and committed to us. We pray, God, that you would continue the good work that you've begun in each of us, soften our hearts so that we might become people of influence that are marked by humility, by selflessness and authenticity. We know that we need your work in us to do this, and so we want to be open to whatever you want to do in our hearts. And it's in our Savior Jesus' name, amen.